You are listening to Overcomers Church International Podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. We are going to go to Ephesians tonight, and I'm going to minister on one of my favorite topics. I kind of uh, messed around with this a little bit last week and uh, shared some things concerning this, but I'm going to continue ministering just kind of down the the path or the idea of uh, really what what we're building here. And, um, you know, I had somebody ask me right before service, we were talking about a, a scenario, actually, when, when I quit doing my business, I was a drapery installer, and, um, and it's not sissy work, in case anybody was. So Dale, Craig, Dale's not here tonight, but he told me I was a sissy for hanging draperies. And then he went and worked with me, with me one day, and he realized it wasn't quite as easy as what he thought. But uh, anyways, uh, so I, that's what I used to do, and I was, and actually, when I quit my business, I actually handed it over to another guy who was quitting pastoring. And so we kind of reversed, we were reversing. Although I'd been pastoring for a while, I stopped being, um, uh, you know, having two jobs, whatever you call that. Uh, like a dual uh, occupation. What do, we call, what do we call that? Moonlighting. That's not the word I normally use, but sure, I guess that'll work. I was more moonlighting as a pastor is what I was doing, and that was supposed to be my main job. Uh, so... Man, what's that's going to drive me crazy? What's the word? Come on, somebody help me out. Would pastors have two occupations? Overworked. overworked. Yeah, overworked and underpaid. <laughs> Amen, I'm in agreement. So whatever, anyways. So I was, uh, I was doing two jobs, whatever you want to call it. And so anyways, we, me and this pastor, we, we kind of were swapping the, what, we were, what we were doing. And so anyways, I had somebody ask me, they said, well, uh, what was it that made him quit, if you don't mind me asking? And I thought, well, actually, I never, I never thought about it, but the answer basically just came to me is that he really didn't have any vision. He was in a church situation to where he, um, he was kind of thrusted into it. He was asked to be a part of it. He came on board, and then it was like the lot just fell to him, and he ran with it for a lot of years, but he really didn't have vision in his heart for where the church was going. And, you know, we have like, you know, you look over there on that wall and we have a vision statement, which is building strong people, building strong churches, plural. And that's something that the Lord just downloaded to me and we continue to move with that. And as a matter of fact, when uh, Pastor Donna first came to me, that was one of the things she asked about was our vision statement. She said, what does churches, plural, look like to you? And then actually this is somewhat what it looks like. And so uh, that's part of how that came about. But Let me say this, as far as vision that's in my heart for what it looks like when we come together, there's some things in the word that we're working towards very specifically, because there's a lot of different ways that you can can do church, and I'm not here to criticize what anybody else is doing, uh, but I've been involved and have done things, and I did church, uh, maybe not the best way for a long time, and then the Lord began to bring me into some understanding that caused me and cause the church to rise to a whole other level. And to me, there's not anything greater when you're in a congregation, when you have the coming together of the saints, uh, not only on a... The devil doesn't like it. He doesn't like what I'm saying. I told you I didn't think this thing was going to last. I just need to go back to the other one. Let's not, let's not mess with this. We tried to use this. We had it fixed, but then they didn't fix it. And so there's, that's what I'm looking for right there. You want to know where most of your money goes? It goes to technology. So anyways, I'm just kidding. But anyways, uh, it's always something new to buy with the sound equipment. But hallelujah, that's better. I think it's not going to rumble and rattle on us. So uh, we, what we've done is we've updated a lot of things with the sound. And so we're working out a lot of kinks every week. That's why we went from uh, not having issues to having issues, but we're getting it worked out. So hallelujah. So, you know, I, we spent a, a lot of years doing things um, actually, without pro- really without a lot of intention, but we just kind of showed up. It's like, well, we love Jesus. Let's preach the word. Let's love on people. And, uh, you know, you can have good intentions, but not have a good result. And so you have to have good intentions. You need to have a plan. 
and then you're going to have some good results. And so I was reading in the Word one day, and, and the Lord, um, it says the plans, this is in Proverbs chapter 20, I believe it says the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, you're very diligent, son, but you don't have any plans. And I said, well, maybe I ought to fix that. <laughs> and so I just began working with the Lord probably over a two-year period to develop plans, vision, understanding, goals, places to go. And that's actually what has propelled me personally in ministry is that when every time I stand behind the pulpit or every time I have a meeting, every time we're in worship, every time we, uh, we, we plan a venture, every time we do anything, there's always purpose behind it. And probably I would say at the root of everything we do, is this idea in me of always getting people to come together. And I, I'm not just talking about coming together and eating a meal together, but I'm talking about coming together and eating a meal or serving on a team or, what, or worshiping or anything we're doing that we're doing it together, but it's not just together physically, but we're actually together in one spirit. And how many of y'all know what I'm talking about? That you've been that, at those places before to where there was like a togetherness there. There was something powerful that was at work there. The, the power of God was at work there because of the unity that was amongst the brethren. And you can find this all through Scripture that when people were unified, they did great things. And even to a, a negative example, but still a great uh, point, when you look at the Tower of Babel, you know, they were doing something. They were trying to make a name for themselves, but they were building a tower to the sky. And they were, they were trying to reach the heavens. I've heard a lot of ideas about what that could actually be. And it's possible that back then they had technology and different things um, that got destroyed and, and whatever. And we might be coming back into things that people once had a hold of all the way back during that time period. But who really knows exactly what it meant when they said they were building a tower to heaven. But because they were together in what they were doing there was nothing, I think it was even the Lord that said, if I'm not mistaken, there's nothing that would be impossible for them, right? He was the one that said that. He said, there's nothing that will be impossible for them. Now, that was in a negative sense because they were doing, they were doing wrong stuff. They were trying to make a name for themselves. But what does it look like if a people come together to make a name for God and they do it together? There's nothing that's impossible for those people. Come on now, that's, that's something to look forward to. So whenever I think about worshiping, and I think about uh, just any, anything that would be involved with the family because we're, we're part of the family of God. And family, the idea of family to me speaks largely an ideal family would be a family that's in covenant with one another, that they walk in unity with one another. There's no jealousy, there's no envying, there's no strife, there's no negative talk, there's no backbiting, there's no any kind of anything that would come in and disrupt the flow of what God is wanting to do. And I had the, that dream in my heart for a long time, and the, in the last year or so, we've seen the, the greatest measure of manifestation in that, and even though that was on the inside of me for a long time, I didn't see it. I had to get really intentional and get plans from the Lord to make it happen. And I can tell you now, we've enjoyed ministry more in the last year uh, because of that. There's a, there's a peace. There's a unity. It's not perfect. But I was talking actually with John earlier, and I was talking about that, you know, whenever you, you talk about the idea of covenant, really what we're supposed to do is come into covenant relationship with one another. And covenant is, is deeper, it goes stronger than just, oh, you know, I go to church with that person or, you know, I see him once a week. But there's a bond there because of who we are in the spirit because we're all connected with the Lord and we're all underneath of his lordship. And we've all been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And we, so we see each other equal in that sense. Amen. And so when you begin to see other people like that and everybody sees each other like that, there is a unity that comes that's so strong that the gates of hell can't prevail against that. Because Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I know for me, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not being critical of anybody or anything, but I've been in church circles and I'm not saying that we're perfect or that our church is perfect. I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying I've seen a difference from where I have been and where how, even how I have led and done things to where we are right now. And a lot of what I experienced in the past was more like hell. Instead of being ones that hell couldn't overcome, 
It was more like living in hell. It was more like I didn't look forward to going. And half the time, I was the pastor of the church. And I, and I was, because being honest, I was, in a, I was in a minister's conference one time, and the guy, I pro- probably shared this with you, but the guy, one of the guys that was ministering, he said, if you're the pastor of the church and you don't want to go to church, something needs to change. And I was with some of the other people that, you know, from the church that were there with me, and I wasn't like, amen. But on the inside, I was like, amen. Because I was thinking, yeah, I need to change some things. And a lot of what I didn't like was the backbiting and the devouring and all of the, the, the self-consuming and the selfish ambition and the self-promotion and all of the things like that. I was experiencing, I was tired of seeing it. And so then I began to pray and believe and move and preach towards not being in that vein and not having a culture like that. And lo and behold, we didn't reach perfection, but we came to a place to where people didn't want to gouge each other's eyes out anymore. It was a beautiful thing. And people would come in and they'd go, you know, I really like being here. Now, some people, I'll hear people every now and again that'll be like, I don't really want to be here, but it's really because the Holy Ghost is in their business and they just don't want to grow. Because one of the things that I've, I've found, like my, my job, actually, we're having this whole conversation. Uh, we were after uh, at lunch today. And uh, just about, you know, really the job of a pastor is really to give people truth, to give people tons of grace and stuff, but is to help them to grow. Shepherds raise sheep and pastors, and really I would say all fivefold ministry leaders, they're all forms of shepherds. They all do shepherding. And their job is to raise up, to train up uh, the body of Christ to equip them and help them grow to where they can reproduce. And the ones they reproduce, they can raise up and train also. And so it's this process that's supposed to be there. And so I got out of the, at least in my mind, I got out of, well, me, I, totally out of my mind and even in practice, the idea of, of wanting to perform to get people to come into the church. Instead, it's like, you know what, let's just be real about this and let's really raise up disciples. And a lot of people don't like that, but the ones that do, they get raised up, they get trained up, and they are able to uh, stand on their own two feet. They have power and strength in their life. They have relationships restored, all kinds of things, and they come into this level of discipleship to where they're actually being productive instead of just sitting. Hallelujah. So that's a little bit of what's in my heart. But here's the deal, is that when you read, and let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, and there's so much I want to say from Ephesians, and I'm going to jump around a little bit here in the book tonight. But Ephesians chapter 4, here's a little bit of a glimpse of maybe where I could say we're going. Because, see, you can write a vision on the wall, and it's like, yeah, we're going towards that. But how many of y'all know that there's an undercurrent that's going on? Many times it's actually stronger. (laughs) Amen. You ever been near a, a, a river when you were younger or the ocean and your mom would be like, there's an undercurrent under there that's really strong and you got to be careful. I know I heard that, you know, growing up. You've heard that. Yeah. Praise God. Amen. From your mother. By the way, for anybody that doesn't know, this is my wife and this is my sister, Katie, and my wife, Liz. And so we have to say that from time to time. Amen. So um, anyways, and that's my son, my youngest. Uh, but people... Sometimes I think Katie and I are married, but we're just brother and sister, and God's put us together in ministry, and it's a great thing. So, hallelujah. Um, but, you know, sometimes there's, there's an undercurrent. There's things going on behind the scenes that are really determining some things that are happening. And that's the way that a, that a church is. That's the way that a family is. That's the way that a household is. That's the way that a business is. I noticed this. You can go to, you can go to the same fast food joint, and you can go one place, and the service is outstanding. And then you can go to the exact same, uh, you know, it maybe be McDonald's or something. You can go to, I don't really eat McDonald's anymore, but whatever. Whatever your choice is, Chipotle, there's one. I loved, oh, man, a Chipotle burrito, mm, baby. So, hallelujah. Um, so, I've gone into some Chipotles, and they are really, really good. They're friendly and fast. And you go on to the other one, you're supposed to be getting the same food, but the food quality is not quite the same. But you can tell there's some bickering and fighting going on in the kitchen. People aren't paying attention. You all know what I'm talking about here? And so, the difference is the undercurrent, the thing that's happening behind the scenes 
that's making the end result be what it is. And so when it comes to a church family, what's going on behind the scenes, if you will, that's really the thing that's most important. But we're after being totally, fully unified in one accord and one might and one, one mind and one heart together. And what happens in Ephesians chapter 4, and you say, well, how long do we do this? All right. And so in Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 13, and I'm jumping in the middle of this, but let me just say this. It says, until or till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So once we get to the full place of maturity and the Lord, then we can stop pressing in towards it. Then we can stop learning and stop growing. That's, that's the point. Has anybody, anybody reached that in here? Because if you have, you need to come up and do this and let me sit and learn. Amen. But no, we're all still should be ideally pressing in towards that, a, a place of maturity, a place of growth, a place of to where we, we look like and represent the Lord. And not just in word, but actually in deed. And see, when you, get, when you get working with people in a ministry, working with people in a church, that's where things really, um, the rubber meets the road. Because the deal is, is that the enemy hates the church. The church is the answer for our culture. It's the answer for the world. We are the answer for the world. And Jesus said that they, speaking of the people outside, will know that you, speaking of the ones inside, will know that you are my disciples. They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And what, what does it seem to be in almost every single church situation? I could probably, if you've been in church for more than five years, but safely 10, 15 years, you've probably experienced some really rotten stuff. And there's reasons why. Part of it is because there's just flesh. Honestly, I haven't been perfect to people. I've made mistakes. I've said things that I haven't meant and had to go back and apologize and different things like that. People are people. But most of the reason that you've experienced rotten stuff and then have come to a place almost like, but you're sitting here and I, and I, and I applaud you for that. Praise God. You haven't quit and given up. But uh, so many times people get so hurt and there's so much stuff that happens that they're like, you know what? I don't think there's any hope for church actually ever being what I read about in the Bible. And I'm here to tell you tonight that church can be what God intended. It will be. And I thank God for what is already here, but it's only going to grow and increase and be greater and stronger and stronger in unity because that's what God has called us to. And if you back up right here, it says in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 4, now I want to make sure that everybody sees this. So let's pull up Ephesians 4 and 12. And let's pull this up here. And this is talking about the five-fold ministry as I refer to it. So the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. It says that he ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets. Uh, excuse me, it says, yeah, yeah. Some apostles, some prophets, some uh, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then in verse 12, I don't know where verse 12 is in there, but I wanted everybody to see it. Can you pull up just verse 12? I think you guys got it. I believe in you. I just want everybody to see this. I won't wait on every, on every verse like this, but I want you to see this. Praise God for technology. Hallelujah. And we are going to move the screens down and in a little bit, and I believe we're going to put one back there too, and it's going to help everybody be able to see a little bit better. Ah, here we go. It says, so he's given, we'll just call it the fivefold, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And then it says this, for, so the saints are equipped for the working of the ministry. What for? For the edifying of the body of Christ. The reason we have the fivefold is to equip the saints. The reason the saints get equipped is to edify the body. So I actually believe the words of Jesus, and I believe the words of the Apostle Paul here, that proper order is fivefold ministry, influences, equips, set in order the people, helps the people. And actually that word equipped is, is literally, it's talking about when something is broken, that it gets mended. So just like you would have, say, you know, an, an arm out of socket or something. That's kind of horrible, but it's really the, it's really actually it's a, a, the picture that it's painting. If you go back and, and dig a little bit deeper, if you, your arm was out of socket, you know, you might go to the doctor or something, and they would put it back in place in its rightful place so that it could be used properly. 
that's the reality of what this is talking about here. You know what I found out? Is that when people come out of the world, and oftentimes out of some particular churches, they come out of so much dysfunction and hurt and problems and issues, what they need more than anything else is to be mended. They need to be put back together, and being put back together along with the teaching and the preaching of the word and, and love and just the right environment, all that kind of stuff, what happens is that person gets equipped. And so instead of being part of the problem, they're part of the solution. Because the truth is, let's be honest, all of us probably on some level have been part of the problem somewhere at some time. Even if it was just a little, a little part, just, just a little part. We've been part of the problem probably because just, we just didn't know anything. You ever said things you shouldn't have said, done things you shouldn't have done? <laughs> Come on, we've all been there before. And when you preach for a living, you're going to say stupid stuff. I've had so many times I've had to go back and say, man, I remember one time I said something and I, I embarrassed somebody really bad. So I really try to be careful not to talk to people when I'm ministering. But I'm a pretty relational person. And man, I had to go back and pretty much just beg for this guy's forgiveness. I mean, he was willing to give it to me, but I said something in a way that really embarrassed him and I didn't mean to. So, you know, people say stupid stuff sometimes. Come on now. Sometimes we've been part of the problem. And so part of even getting fixed or adjusted or mended, you know, I found that sometimes the best way to even bring about a culture of unity and respect and honor and love is being willing to admit you're wrong. And I've been in environments and circles to where nobody was willing to admit they're wrong. Well, somebody's got to break that cycle and pioneer love in that situation and make a determination that they're going, they're going to bring in the right heart and the right spirit and the right stuff in the middle of that and humble themselves and say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to admit my wrong here. I'm going to acknowledge my wrong here and, you know, not make a big deal about it, but acknowledge your wrong and for the sake of everybody else. Because taking on the spirit of Christ is taking on the mindset for the sake of everybody else. It's not about how you feel. It's about what's right for the sake of everybody else. Christ laid down his life for the world and for the church, and it wasn't because he felt like it. And it wasn't because he did anything wrong. He did it because it was necessary to sacrifice for the sake of the whole. And you know what? That's what covenant-minded people do. Covenant-minded people Understand sacrifice. I said this last week, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say it again because it bears repeating. But in our, in our culture, we, we just really don't have a real great under, working revelation of sacrifice. Back in the day, and I'm not wanting to have any animal sacrifices or anything, so don't misunderstand me. But back in the day, you know, they sacrificed animals, right? And so they always had a picture of something, even if it, they weren't willing, but uh, of something giving up its life for the sake of something or somebody else. Come on, how many of y'all know what I'm talking about? And so they had this constant reminder of sacrifice every day, every year, and it was always a picture of covenant, but the covenant was established because of the blood sacrifice. Today, we're on this side of the cross, and Jesus was the one sacrifice for all time and for all people, and we don't need to make any more sacrifices in that sense. But real, true covenant relationships require constant sacrifice. Liz and I are married. We're in a covenant together in marriage. And in order to really make it work, we have to lay down our wills daily for each other and sacrifice our desires, our wants, all of that. But you know what's awesome is that the longer we've, be, we've been married, the more our desires and things have meshed together and we actually, because we're in covenant and we work at our covenant, we, our desires and ideals and things have actually become one, really, truly become one. There's not anything that she wants to do that I'm like, well, I don't want to go do that. I want to do this over, over here. And, and vice versa is true. And when we first got married, that was not the case. We went to Bible college and I didn't even know this till later. She was on the inside kicking and screaming, but she was like, well, I'm going to be a supportive wife. And so we're going to go and it was good and horrible all at the same time because I didn't have a cotton-picking clue how to be a husband even when I went to Bible college. But that's another story for another thing. I mean, it, I did on some levels. I was, you know, loved her and everything, but I didn't understand what she was going through and so on and so forth. But we worked at it. And because we worked at it, we've actually gelled and meshed together. 
But the reason we were able to do that is because I value, now listen to this, this is really important. I actually value what we have together. Now this is strong language. I value what we have together more than I value her. And I value what we have together more than I value me. I think that went over some of your old heads. Thank you for those watching online. I hear your amen. But it's not about her will. It's not about my will. We, when we came into covenant with one another, we gave up our wills. Liz didn't have a will anymore. I don't have a will anymore. But together, we do have a will. I'm not saying we're not individuals. We are very much individuals. We're, we're very different people. But our covenant has been so meshed together that it doesn't really matter what I want anymore. And I'm glad to do that. You know why? Because I value what we have together, and we have an incredible marriage. Why? Because we're incredible people? No, because we worked at it. I mean, we had to work at it. We've had to fight for our marriage. We've had to fight through things. We've had to work through things. We've had obstacles come against us. Everybody in here who's married or been married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you didn't just leave. You didn't just go, well, you know what? Forget this. This is too much work. I mean, there could have been things that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't reconcile. Stuff happens. I'm not coming against that. But just generally speaking, your automatic response was to go, let's work through this thing. And even though you may have not put it into words, subconsciously, it's because you valued your relationship more than you valued your own personal will at that moment. But here's the deal. When it comes to church relationships, we don't view them as covenant. I didn't used to. I do now. When God brings people in and we are brought in together, I would do anything for those people. Anything. I've come to find out not everybody will do things for me. But a lot will. And the more I've found that people will come together and really value what we have together, the stronger the unity is and the stronger the, the presence of God is, the glory of God, the more manifestation, the more love, the more we get done. Because now all of a sudden, we're operating like Christ operated and we lay down our wills, our own personal desires and wants for the sake of the whole. See, when Jesus came and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, he said this. He said, not my will, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Liz taught me something really powerful about that one day. I didn't even know. The language there, you go back and look at it a little bit deep, the language there, is, it was actually an exchange of wills. When he was saying, not my will, but yours, he was saying, I'm releasing what my physical body doesn't want to do. I'm releasing that to you so that I can take on what you have for me. That's what Jesus was saying. Well, when you come into relation, relationship and covenant with people, whether it's a marriage or it's a friendship or it's, or it's church family, when you come into a covenant like that, if, if you are a covenant-minded person, you come in and say, it's not about me. I know it shouldn't be about you either. It's definitely not about me, but it's about what we have together in Christ, and I'm giving up my wants and my desires so that I can fulfill what's in your life and what God's doing here together. I was telling Katie on the way over here that, I mean, we love our family. Um, we have two brothers, and we love them, but nothing, none of our, and a lot of you know exactly where I'm going, none of those relationships actually compare with the relationships that we have with people in the kingdom. See, when you see people as covenant, you see them as a as a uh, somebody to really partner with and not just be around until they annoy you and you leave them. <laughs> That's not covenant mentality, but it but it is a it is an epidemic or what's what's the one that's worldwide? Pandemic, right? We've been in a pandemic apparently. So, it is a pandemic in the church. It's a mentality of, you frustrated me, you've offended me. And listen, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's barriers that have to be set, and there's sometimes you need to leave, you need to do something different. I get that. It's a real world we live in, and seasons can change. I get that. But when God brings you into people and with people, the automatic mentality that should be there is I'm here with you until the bitter end. 
and no matter what comes up, until God releases me, I'll fight for you and I'll fight for what we have together. I will fight till the bitter end because I value what God's doing more than I value my feelings, my thoughts, my opinions, my emotions, my calling, my anointing, my gifting. Wow. That's deeper than where some people want to go, but that's, that's, what, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. And you know what I found? Doing this with people has caused people to rise up. It's caused me to rise up, and it's caused the whole church to rise up. Because we don't make it about individuals. We make it about the whole of what God's doing. Hallelujah. I don't know how much time I got left here. I have a few minutes. Can you all take 15 more minutes? Are you with me? Why don't you just stand up for one second and let the blood flow? Because I have a few more really important things that I want to tell you that I haven't gotten to. Hallelujah. Somebody say, this is good. God's good. His word is good. And I'm covenant-minded. And I'm going to remain that way. Because God's worth it. The people are worth it. We're on the right track. Hallelujah. Amen. You can be seated. So I want to, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And I say back because I was there last week. And I want to I read this one thing here. And then I'm going to jump back over to Ephesians chapter 6. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm not going to wait for the guys to get it up on the screen. Uh, just in case they're having technical difficulties back there. But Ephesians chapter 2. And in verse 19, it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. One of the things that we, we really believe in, that I believe in, is at the core of what I believe in is that we have to accept people. We have to be loving and hospitable towards people. Because when people come in, especially people that are already in Christ, but really just people in general, we need to love them and treat them not like they are foreigners. See, the nature of this thing, and the Lord actually spoke to me, and we're going to start this next week. He spoke to me about a different way to take communion, and we're going to, we're going to do it together. It's been really, really strong. And we did it one time, but I'm going to give a little bit more explanation behind it. And see, the nature of communion, when you take communion, is supposed to be about reflecting the value that's in the blood. And the value of what the blood brought was a... It's, it's, when you think of the word communion, it's a common unity. And so the one thing that we all have in common is that every one of us were on our way to hell, and Jesus redeemed every single one of us that put faith in him. And when you read, and uh, forgive me if it's second, I don't know if it's second or first Corinthians chapter 11, uh, when Paul is talking about, and he's writing to them, and he repeats the words of the Lord about taking my, uh, my, my blood and my body, which is broken, and my blood that was shed, all, all of that. He corrects them in the, in the middle of all that conversation there. You have to go back and read. I'm not going to take time to do it right now. But they were, they were doing this. See, when they would take communion back in the day, and I'm not against having, having a, 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 like a wafer and a little you know, cup of juice. I'm not against it. It's fine. It's, it speaks, and it, and it represents, and really the, the Bible says that it is the body and the blood of the Lord. Uh, and people have gotten weird with that, but I'm just repeating what the word says. And so it, it, it means a lot, and I'm fine with that. But back in that time, their communion was coming together and having a meal together. And that meal, the conversation, the idea behind it is that they were coming together for one purpose and one reason, and that is that they were all redeemed they were all redeemed from the pits of hell. They were all redeemed from Satan's grip. They were all redeemed from hell. They were all redeemed from, you know, all of the things of the world and brought into Christ. That was the idea behind it. But he dealt with them and he said, some of you have come together for the better, but you've actually come together for the worse. Because when uh, someone comes in who doesn't have anything and doesn't have anything to offer, those of you that, that brought a bunch of food in, you've well eaten and you've left other people outside. And you have essentially, what he was saying is that you have preferred yourself over other people, and it's a slap in the face to God. It actually is against the whole idea of what communion is about. Because when you have a community of people that come together to receive communion, it's supposed to bring about a unity because we're all on the exact same playing field. It doesn't matter if you're a local pastor, if you're Billy Graham, 
if you're T.L. Osborne, if you're the drug addict who just got born again, it doesn't matter who you are. If you've been saved, we're all on the exact same playing field. Every one of us needed Jesus. And so when we come into that to that uh, communion, we come into that relationship together under the blood of Jesus, there should never be any preferring of ourself over anybody else. I mean, you can take that back then. It would have looked a little bit different because, you know, maybe some people wouldn't have had food. And, you know, probably everybody in here would say, well, I would never, if somebody needed food, I would never eat food and not give food to somebody else. Well, praise God. You'd look pretty ridiculous if you did that. Amen. But, you know, the heart is still there oftentimes in people. Because whatever is, is up for grabs, whatever is available, people will often prefer themselves over other people. Man, they want the position on the worship team. They want to teach. They want to do this. They want to do that. They, they're going after all these things, and they really are concerned about their gifting, their, I, their uh, I, ideals, their ambitions. And if they have to crawl over and walk over and stomp over other people to get it, they're just fine with doing it. That's not covenant-minded. And I'm not saying that anybody in here has got that kind of attitude, but I am saying that the enemy comes in. If we have any weakness in that area, he'll come in and actually bring division between us and other people just for the sake and us being led around by our flesh just for the sake of us having what it is that we want. Hopefully you guys are being encouraged. I'm just speaking the truth. So Ephesians chapter 2, where was I? Oh, I had read verse 19 and verse 20. Ephesians 2 and 20, it says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You want to know our purpose for coming together? It's a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. If God's not here, I was just talking this brother back here before the service, and I said, if the, if the Holy Ghost isn't here, I really don't want any part of it. If he's not involved, I really don't want any part of it. He's the, he's the main dish. He's the main deal. He's the reason why we are here. And if the Holy Spirit has to have a dwelling place to come and dwell amongst us, we had better do anything necessary to make that place right for him to set and come and dwell in our midst. And I can tell you this, that the enemy, the, excuse me, the Holy Spirit will never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Because Jesus said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, yet he did. But what he was saying was that I'm sending the Holy Spirit and he'll always be with you. He'll always be on the inside of you. So he's always there with us. But there's a difference between having him in you, having him in you, having him rest upon you personally, and even having him rest upon you corporately, rest upon us corporately. There's a difference in that. And right here, he's talking about being built together, being fitted, having all of the rough edges knocked off so we can be fit in there. And you say, well, I don't want to just be a brick and look like everybody else. If it's for the sake of the whole temple, I'll look like any piece and anything that God wants me to look like because there's nothing that compares to the glory of God which shall be revealed in us. And I'm telling you that this house is a house full of the glory of God that is only increasing. It's not a decreasing glory. It is an increasing glory. We're going to see more tremendous things happen in the future than we have yet. Way more. But it's not going to come without some work. You know where the work comes in? Coming in and laying down self. The most unpopular but my most favorite message that I teach is talking about just laying down self. I found that the more of me that I get rid of, the happier I am. Happier Liz is too. But it's true. The more of us we lay down and get out of the way. And people, nobody really likes to hear that. I don't even really like to hear it. I mean, I do because I know it's right. But it, it, every time you, you think about it and you look at it, the reality is, okay, I've got some ideals. I've got some ambition. I've got some will in me that I've not yet turned over to the Lord to take upon his will, his ideals, so that we can really do this thing his way. Because, see, the way that God has it set up is that we're totally unified together. And the deal is, is that Jesus said that when you lose your life, you're, then you're going to find it. You want to find real life, lose it. And when a, corp, when a corporate body, I hate to say a corporate body, it sounds businessy. I don't mean it like that. But when a whole congregation is the better word. When a whole congregation 
chooses to do that and the majority chooses to do that and fall in line with that, glory will fall and rest on the people in great measure. And nobody will be able to say it's because of that guy up there. Nobody will be able to say it. It'll only be, we just turned our hearts towards the Lord. Praise God for good, strong leadership that led us there. But we just turned our hearts over towards the Lord and God showed up. Because if he's there, I want to be there. If he's not there, I don't want to be there. I just decided years ago, I'm just going to go all out at this thing. All out. The very best I know how to do. Give it everything I've got. Continue to have less of me and more of him the very best I can. And as long as I continue doing that, I feel like I'm being successful. Thank you, Jesus. So we're after having utopia. We're supposed to have heaven invade earth. Churches are supposed to represent and look like heaven. In heaven, there is no lack of peace. There's no lack of joy. There's no broken fellowship. There's no broken covenant. Nobody's mad and angry. Nobody's fighting for position. We're just going to be there. And the truth is, is that I think the thing we're all going to have in common is we're going to come to a full realization of just how redeemed, how lost we were, how redeemed we are, and how wonderful Jesus is. What if we can just do that now? Let's not wait. I don't want to get to heaven and, and, and have culture shock. Thank you, Jesus. I have five more minutes. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. And I, I want to, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the book of Ephesians. And, and you're going to hear me over the months and over the years. Uh, you're going to hear me minister out of the book of Ephesians. I believe it's a blueprint for a successful church. And the Lord has proven that to be true to my, to my liking. And I believe this is, a, again, just a recipe for things working right. The first three chapters in Ephesians, if you could break it down into a few words, it would be this. It's who we are in Christ and who he is in us. There's some other things in there, but basically the first three chapters of Ephesians are who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. So it's the reality of who we are in the spirit. It's really the real true us because the real true us isn't what, what we can feel. It's not our flesh suit and it's not necessarily what we can uh, you know, see, taste, see, or smell, and feel or, or even just our emotions and all. That's not our real us. The real us is the born again part of us in the spirit that God has made us and transformed us on the inside. That's the real us. And all of the benefits and blessing that come from heaven have already been given to us, and that's who we are, and that's what we possess in the Spirit. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. So when the when Paul's writing to the Ephesians, now he's writing to, to people that were going to read it thousands of years later, but he's also writing to a local church to take it and have the revelation and apply it so that it's actually applicable and works in their life. The last three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, all deal with practical uh, relationships and the reality of who they are being made manifest to the people around them. So you can say it's taking the reality of the covenant that they have in Christ and making it a reality with the covenant they have with people. You know, the, the deal is, is that if we ever have ought or issue with anybody, we might as well make it right on this side of heaven because I guarantee you we're going to have to do it on the other side. But here's the deal. You need to understand this. From Ephesians chapter 4, in fact, hold your place in Ephesians 6. We're, 6, we're going to come right back there. But if, from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through Ephesians 6 and 9, he talks about marriage relationships. He talks about church relationships. He talks about uh, parents and children relationships. He talks about uh, employer, and we would say today employer and employee relationships, he basically covers the whole gamut of relationships. Because you know where the enemy comes in? Always. Always. Everybody say always. always. He always comes in through relationships. He'll work in our minds 
I believe that our mind is, is a battlefield. I believe that. But he comes in to bring division in relationships. Because if we are divided, the enemy can pick us off one by one. That's the first thing. But also, if we're divided, we'll never accomplish what the Lord has for us. I want to accomplish what the Lord has for us. Because I can't do what God's shown me without you. And you can't do what God has shown you without me. We need each other. Literally, we need each other. So the issue isn't seeing everything eye to eye. The, the issue is coming into covenantal agreement. This is why marriage vows say for better or for worse, all the way to the point of death, I'm going to stick with you. Why? Because the person that originally had the idea of having marriage vows had been married for a while and realized if we don't take some serious language into this thing, people could get married and then just after a few short weeks or, or months of what's supposed to be a, a utopia and coming into the reality of what it's like to live with somebody and wake up with somebody every day and deal with all that stuff, they probably won't want to be with each other anymore. Because when you're married to somebody, when you're really married to them, you get both the assets and the liabilities. <laughs> when I married her, she married me. She got a lot of liability. I got a lot of asset. It's true. She's got way more. She doesn't have a whole lot of liabilities. It's true. <laughs> she doesn't disagree. Except for a little bit of pride there that we're still working through. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I can't even joke, and people are like, how dare you say that about her? Dale Craig told me one time, he's like, man, he said, you could be laid in a hospital bed all beat to a pulp, and people would walk in and say, what would you do to Liz for her to do this to you? <laughs> It's true. But when you're in covenant with somebody, you, you're saying to them, no matter how rotten of a person you are that I don't even realize yet, I'm still going to take you anyways. Now, it doesn't mean you live underneath of abuse. I'm not saying that kind of stuff, all right? Don't, miss, don't take it to an extreme that's not correct. But when you come into covenant with somebody, you're saying, I'm with you because God has called me to be with you, and I'm going to take your good stuff and your bad stuff, and you're going to take my good stuff and, your and my bad stuff, and we're going to work together towards something greater. But Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. The very end of Ephesians chapter 3, he stops talking about everything that we have in the Spirit everything that Christ has given to us, the reality in the spirit, and then he brings it to reality. And he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, it's a strong and pouring, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring. Everybody say endeavoring. Endeavoring means you have to work at it. Endeavoring to keep. Everybody say keep. Keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do you know that when you come into relationship with people and the Lord, you already have a unity there with them? You may not feel unified, but there's already a unity, again, because you both were blood-bought and both brought underneath the blood of Jesus for the same reason. You both, all of us, were sinners. We're sinners. And we needed Jesus. We already have a unity. He says, work to keep that unity. Work at it. Endeavor. Make it your life choice, life decision that you are going to walk in love with people and be at peace with them as much as is on your part. You can't make other people do this, but you can make yourself do this. So that's how he starts off Ephesians 4 and 1. And then he goes and he, and he takes that, that same tone all the way through Ephesians 6 and verse 9. And look what he says in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What an interesting thing to just throw in there. I mean, Paul was just so random in his writing. I mean, he went from talking about who we are in the spirit to talking about relationship problems, and now all of a sudden we're in spiritual warfare. I mean, could he really not put his words together? No, no. He knew exactly what he was saying. Know who you are. 
Realize the propensities of people and the fact that you're going to have to work together, but you're building something significant in the spirit together. So work at it. But understand this. There's going to come an evil day when the enemy is going to try to come between you and the people that you're called to be in covenant with. And it is your job to recognize that your battle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, my God. Pastor Kent, that's some of the best preaching I have heard in months and years. We've been waiting to hear that. Thank you. Hallelujah. I mean, that's just how I feel about it on the inside. I mean, it's just, it gets me riled up because it's the truth. The enemy, he, he put, the, you, under, you have to understand, context is king. You all knew when I said 15 minutes, I meant 20. Context is king. You have to read things in context to understand fully what it's saying. When you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. C-O-N-T-E-X-T. Take the T-E-X-T out. I think you guys got it. You're left with C-O-N. There's been all kinds of things. And, I, and I, this is a great scripture verse for spiritual warfare. There's a place for it. You can apply this in a lot of different ways, and I'm not against that. But understanding it in context is the strongest application for it. And in context, he's talking about relationships. Why are relationships so important? Because it says that when he, when he ascended and he gave gifts to men, he didn't give it to one man. All of the gifts were only given to one man one time ever, and that was Jesus. <laughs> what a revelation. I just, that just came to me. I'd never said that before. When you get under the anointing, you'll say some awesome stuff. You can also flip-flop in the flesh sometimes and go, I shouldn't have said that. But well, the last thing I said, I should have said for sure. That was really good. <laughs> I don't know. I, think, I don't know where that came from. But he only gave all the gifts to one man ever, one time. Since then, they've been given and dispersed to everybody. You want to know why? The church has been sick and weak and anemic and problematic for so long. It's because the gifts haven't come together as a whole to give the wholeness of Christ to the whole church. If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit ociperryville.com.